The following is offered by Discerning Hearts, a 501 nonprofit Catholic apostolate dedicated to spiritual formation through the use of digital media. To download this selection, or to browse hundreds of other programs, or to contribute to our mission with a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, visit our website at discerninghearts.com. Ignatius Press and the Augustan Institute present The Formed Book Club. Catholic book lovers unpacking good books chapter by chapter. If you like us, please help us by subscribing and by reviewing us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you might listen. And don't forget to sign up for weekly updates and study questions at formedbookclub.ignatius.com. Welcome to the Form Book Club with Vivi Dudro, Joseph Pierce, myself, Father Pesio. We continue to discuss Joseph Carlo Ratzinger's The Spirit of Liturgy. You may have the commemorative edition, uh, which is the most recent edition, or you may have the old edition, beat up and unlined like, like mine is. Uh, I'm going to use mine, uh, but I have the page numbers marked for yours so I can give both sets of page numbers. This book will be handled a little differently, as you can see already, or hear already, or hear and see already, uh, than what we've done in the past, because this is something that's central to Ratzinger, central to my life. I've, I've studied it, I've read it, I've taught it, I've underlined it, and so I'm kind of taking lead on this. And these next two chapters, which are chapter two and three of part two, are, I believe, central to Ratzinger's thinking on this and to mine as well. And so this is going to be probably a lot of uh, citations and then comment. Uh, so if you like this, great. If you don't, don't give up on Forum Book Club because of this, because <laughs> we'll go back to our, you know, our, our normal pattern uh, later. Uh, we... We talked about the first part, which is the essence of the liturgy and how important that word was for him, basin. The second part is on time and space in liturgy. We covered the first chapter last session, the relationship of the liturgy, time and space, some preliminary questions. So that sets it, sets it apart. Now comes these two important chapters. Chapter 2, sacred places, the significance of the church building, page 62 or 76 in the new edition, the chapter begins, even the staunchest opponents of sacred things, of sacred space in this case, accept that the Christian community needs a place to meet. And on that basis, they define the purpose of the church buildings in a non-sacral, strictly functional sense. So you got to meet somewhere. So it doesn't have to be sacred, right? But skipping down to by, by the middle there, uh, similarly, the temples of all the other religions are usually not meeting places for worshipers, but cultic spaces reserved to the need. And if you visit some of these shrines in Greece or in Rome, it, it, the God is there, but there's no room for anybody else. You know, it's a place for the gods. The Christian church building soon acquired the name Domus Ecclesiae, the house of the church, the assembly of the people of God, because Ecclesia from Greek, Places means a calling, and ek means out, so calling out or, or gathering to. And then the abbreviation of the word ecclesia, assembly or church. Now, church is from a different word. That's from the Greek kuriake, which means the Lord's, and it became kirche in German and then church in English. But So you've got a, 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 eglise, ecclesia, 
ecclesial, which is from the Latin tradition, and church, which is from the German, you know, Greek tradition. Cave is not just the living community, but also the building that housed it. So, you know, at first it was the people, but then since they gathered in this place, uh, it's the place where they gather. Continuing here, this development is accompanied by another idea. Christ himself offers worship as he stands before the Father. So this kind of connects the two. It's the, it's the house of the God, but it's the house of Christ, who's the not our idol, but our real presence of God offering himself to the Father. So we'll be 10 lines down on the next page, 63 or 77. St. Cyril Jerusalem makes an interesting point about the word convocatio, which is Latin for synagogue, ecclesia, the assembly of the people called together and made his own by God. Middle of the page. The calling together, the assembly has a purpose, and that purpose is worship. That's going to be key in this chapter because it's not for us to have a social gathering. It's not for kind of... Uh, what, uh, making friends or uh, integrating the community is to come together to worship God. So five lines from the bottom or six. Can I just... Yes, you go ahead. Can jump I just in. Uh, um, highlight something there? Yeah. In other words, the building is for the worship of God, but the worship of God is intended to create a community. That's right. Right? It's just, you know, when people get the outcome, what means and ends mixed up. You know, that always leads to problems. Right. We, among Jesuits, we had a, a thing called Conversations Which Matters. We had our monthly or whatever it is, quarterly meeting uh, a couple of nights ago. And it was on friendship. Uh, and it was a lot of things about, you know, what you, the, the box you have to check if you want to have friends, you know. <laughs> and one of the priests said, well, no, friendship is a gift. I said, exactly right. You know, if you're trying to have, seek to have friends, you're not going to have many, many, not any good ones. Friendship is a byproduct philia of seeking the same thing with a person and you share that that goal that mission you know likewise the community of christians is formed not by saying hey let's have a community find out some reason to do it no we're going to worship god and that brings us together right six or seven lines from the bottom let us look more closely at the process by which church buildings took concrete form using the Research of E.L. Sukhanik and Louis Boyer, and Louis Boyer will be mentioned elsewhere here, who is a great theologian in the late 19th and early 20th century, a good friend of Dubuque's and Balthazar's and Ratzinger's, uh, another author of Ignatius Press, uh, has shown how the Christian house of God comes into being in complete continuity with the synagogue and thus acquires a specifically Christian newness. So we're going to see here that the Jews had two places of worship, the temple, where they all worshiped and offered sacrifice, and the synagogues, where they had prayer services and reading services, which are not Jerusalem for the most part. And how the Christian place of worship is going to be the, the melding, if you were, of both the synagogue worship of the word and the temple sacrifice to the Lord. Next page, six lines down. For the Jews saw the synagogue in relation to the temple. A couple lines below that. Its orientation was always toward the presence of God. Now, for the Jews, this presence of God was and is indissolubly connected with the temple. 
Consequently, the synagogue was characterized by two focal points. Okay, so again, it's important that the Jews in the synagogues all had the temple, excuse me, the synagogue faced the place of the temple, just like mosques face Mecca, you know. So the first is the seat of Moses. That's where the teaching goes on, right? Down about the middle of the page. What the seat of Moses stands for is this. Sinai, where God appeared to Moses, is not just a thing of the past. It is not mere human speech that is happening here. God is speaking. The seat of Moses then does not stand for itself and by itself, nor does it simply turn toward the people. No. The rabbi looks, as is everyone else in the synagogue, toward the Ark of the Covenant, or rather the Shrine of the Torah, which represents the lost Ark. So, again, he's leading up to something here, which I think is important, which is going to be facing east. But he's doing it by saying, this isn't just an idea of some new liturgist. This is rooted in the deepest spiritual tradition of, of Israel, which is our, our heritage, you know. Next page, new paragraph, page 74 or 65. The synagogue and its shrine of the Torah contains a kind of Ark of the Covenant, which means it is the place of a kind of real presence. Here are kept the scrolls of the Torah, the living word of God, through which he sits on his throne in Israel among his own people. So God's presence is in the word, you know. I skip a page over to 67 or 81, your paragraph. I have lingered over this description of the synagogue because it exhibits already the essential and constant features of Christian places of worship. So again, he's harping on that. What's, what's at the core? What's, what's the deepest meaning? What's essential? Three lines from the bottom. Christian faith produced three innovations in the form of the synagogue, as we just sketched it. So he's showing how our worship is rooted in, in the synagogue worship, but now he's going to say, what changes do we make? Last word on that page. And this first of all, the worshiper no longer looks toward Jerusalem. The destroyed temple is no longer regarded as the place of God's earthly presence. So we don't look towards Jerusalem anymore. A couple of lines down. I'm sorry, Father. I've lost where you are. We're on page 82. 82. Five lines down now. Thank you. Christians look toward the east, the rising sun. This is not a case of Christians worshiping the sun but of the cosmos speaking of Christ. And we already saw that when it came to uh, the time uh, of worship. It's historical, but it's also cosmic. Middle of the page. The East supersedes Jerusalem temple as a symbol. Christ, represented by the sun, is the place of the Shekinah, the true throne of the living God. Kabod is... Glory, but Shekinah, I think, is something like glory. I'm not sure what it means in Hebrew. Uh, now, we're still on the first change that was made in the synagogue. Down a few lines. In the early church, prayer toward the east was regarded as an apostolic tradition. That means that's what the apostles did. This goes back to the practice of the apostles. We cannot date exactly when this turn to the east, the diverting of the gates from the temple, took place. But it is certain that it goes back to the earliest times and was always regarded as 
and essential characteristic of Christian liturgy. Then bottom of the page is the second, uh, you know, orientation is first and foremost, a simple expression of looking to Christ as a meeting place between God and man. It expresses the basic crystallized form of our prayer. Then comes the second part. The fact that we find Christ in the symbol of the rising sun is the indication of a Christology defined eschatologically. Eschaton in Greek means the last thing. The eschaton or the last things. We talk about the four last things. Death, judgment, heaven, and hell. Praying toward the east means going to meet the coming Christ. So Christ is coming to us. The liturgy turned toward the east affects entry, so to speak, into the procession of history toward the future. The new heaven and the new earth. And then finally, about ten, eight lines below that, thus very early on in parts of Christendom, the eastward direction for prayer was given the added emphasis by reference to the cross. So those three things, facing east uh, as Christ is the rising sun, facing east because he's the Christ who comes eschatologically, and then placing a cross there, which links the crucifixion with the second coming in history with the cosmos. And, 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 and the resurrection, right? Yes. The risen sun, so the resurrection right and the second right. coming, yeah. And what I like there, Father, about this is the fact, you know, contrary to what we've been told or taught, at least the way I was told or taught, is that it's all about us all moving forward towards the Lord, right? We're all facing the same way. There's no center of attraction other than Christ. The orientation is all towards Christ, and we're all facing the same way or moving in the same direction towards the risen Lord, now, whether it's in the resurrection or the second coming or heaven. Um, so, um, uh, or death on the cross. So, you know, it's all facing the same way. And, and for me, when I came to realize that, and I may might come to realize that initially through uh, experiencing the liturgy as you celebrated at Ave Maria when we were there together, uh, the, the whole point about orientation ad orientum, it reoriented me. And what it did, I mean, uh, it, it, again, it reminds me of this thing. You and I taught a course fairly recently on Chesterton at Ave Maria. Uh, about Chester's recurring motif of standing on your head so you can see something for the first time, and that sometimes you realize you, you've actually, this is the first time you're standing the right way up. You'd always be standing on your head without realizing it. And this experience of ad orientum, of being oriented during the Mass in the right direction, which I largely thank you for, um, made me realize, hang on a second, I'd be facing in the wrong direction the whole time. And now, you know, I'm facing in the right direction at Mass. It was such a, literally, a revolutionary moment. We'll return to the Forum Book Club with Father Joseph Fessio, Vivian Dudreau, and Joseph Pierce in just a moment. Did you know that Discerning Hearts has a free app in which you can find all your favorite Discerning Hearts programming? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Deacon James Keating, Mike Aquilina, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and so many more are found on the Discerning Hearts free app. Did you also know that you can stream Discerning Hearts programming on numerous streaming platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, and so many more. And did you know that Discerning Hearts also has the YouTube page? Be sure to check out all these different places where you can find Discerning Hearts. 
Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, and my entire will, all that I have and call my own. You have given all to me. To you, Lord, I return it. Everything is yours. Do with it what you will. Give me only your love and your grace. That is enough for me. Amen. Hello, my name is Deacon Omar Gutierrez, and I want to ask you to support Discerning Hearts in a special way. We, Chris McGregor, the board, and I all know that not everyone listening can help financially. We know we have listeners from all parts of the world, and we have made a commitment since the beginning to make the truths shared through Discerning Hearts totally free. So while you may not be able to contribute financially, what you can do is certainly pray, but also give us positive reviews on whatever platform you use to listen to us. If it's iTunes, Android, Stitcher, Spotify, however it is that you get these podcasts, or if you're on YouTube and you like our videos, please give us a good rating and write a review. The more good ratings and reviews we get, the higher our profile, and the more listeners will discover us, listeners who may have the means to contribute in the future. Please consider rating us and writing a positive review today. We now return to the Formed Book Club with Father Joseph Fezio, Vivian Dudreau, and Joseph Pierce. And because it's revolutionary, I think it's resisted by many who do not want to go back beyond the council, and I don't either. Uh, the thing is, the council itself, as we'll see in the next chapter, said nothing about changing the altar's orientation. But that has become sort of the central experience or symbol of Mass after the Council. And so if you want to change the altar back to facing East, people think you're rejecting the Council, which you're not. And the problem is, like say with Gregorian chant, uh, you can add one chant to Mass, like the Curie, and then later on add the Agnes Day and gradually bring people back to what the Council really intended. But you can't change the altar 10 degrees, you know. Yeah. You either got to spin it around, uh, or in fact, you know, you just got to get into the side of it for most for most part. But it, it seemed like a revolution. And uh, here's something that Vivian uh, has experienced with me. I don't think Thomas has. The Ignatius Press for 27 years uh, worked out of a home, a house owned by the Carmelite nuns, whose monastery was next door. And then a beautiful chapel on the corner, though, of Fulton and, and uh, Parker. And because of the way they built it, the chapel had to face west. So it wasn't facing east. But once you got in there, you had uh, you had the pews, you had the altar rail, you had a beautiful baldacchino, you had an altar, uh, fixed altar uh, against uh, the tabernacle, and the cross above the tabernacle, and... This was called Cristo Rey Monastery, Christ the King, right? And so they had a sculpture at the back wall, which is the risen Christ. And so I'll, I'll never forget this experience of celebrating Mass there at the consecration. You hold up the host, and you've got Christ present now at this sacrifice. You have the tabernacle with Christ remaining there. You've got the crucifix, the resurrection, and you've got the risen Christ there. So we didn't see the rising sun. But it was the it was the same experience, you know. In fact, our one of our two boys who would 
serve Father's Masses as acolytes, one of our sons coming home from one of those Masses says, it's the most beautiful thing, Mom, to be kneeling there and looking up at the priest through the cross to the resurrection. He got it. He got yeah. how this world, we are a religion of symbols and symbolic language. And Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Oh, and just locally here, you know, I, I, there are three parishes in, in where I live, and they're all diocesan parishes. They're not sort of part of any order. Um, and they've all reoriented in, since we've been living here. And I mm. remember one of those uh, uh, parishes, the, 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 um, the priest at the beginning of Lent said that we, as of Easter Sunday, we are going to start celebrating Ad Orientum. And he spent the whole of Lent uh, at, at the homily part uh, explaining, I think using the spirit of liturgy as his basis of his argument, why this was important. And so by the time we got to Easter Sunday, the whole of the congregation, I mean, maybe one or two families left, but, but basically the whole of the congregation was absolutely on board and on fire for the idea, not just accepting, but embracing. So you don't have to uh, uh, twist it slowly. You just have to prepare people, prepare people and instruct people, because once they understand the beautiful reasons for these things, like you say, Joseph, they welcome them for the most part. Isn't it possible, Father, that one reason why after the council um, this confusion over the placement of the altar occurred is because one thing the council fathers did want was the people being closer to the altar. Right. And so a lot of these high altars that were way against the wall, and if you go to European churches, they're way far away from the nave. You know, there right. might even be a choir in front of it and choir uh, rails in front of it. Right. And so this idea of bringing the altar closer so people can participate more. But with that came the priest going on the other side of it. And so... I, I think those things got confused together, they did. maybe. No, they did. Yeah. I agree completely with that. I mean, one good thing about the traditional high altar is impossible for the priest to go behind it, which is great. Um, but uh, you know, but I, the, I think the key thing here, as far as Father said at the beginning of, of before we went the, on, on this general discussion, was that there's this confusion, and of course, it's not an accidental confusion in many cases between what the Vatican II actually said and what people say it says in its spirit. And it's this confusion between the authentic spirit of Vatican II and, and, and the supposed spirit of Vatican II, which has caused the confusion. And, and many people think that things are contrary to Vatican II, which are not contrary to Vatican II. And that, of course, then fans the flames of, of the division uh, you know, it's such, some traditionalists think the Vatican II is evil because they don't know the difference between mm -hmm. what the council taught and what people say the council taught, which is not the same thing. Right. And I want to add something to the image I gave before, because I mentioned from my point of view, I'm seeing the host and the tablet, so, but for someone in the pews, you're seeing also the priest who takes the place of Christ. And because he's not facing you, I mean, it's a better symbol for Christ, you know, than a particular personal priest. Plus the fact beautiful vessels might have on the back of it, it might have a you know Christ head crown or something like that, you know. But I think part of me, I think you know, it's just a human relations. You're looking towards someone, the natural thing to do is to see that particular individual human person, to see their face, to see their eyes. It's very difficult to actually 
get beyond that to the persona Christi. But when the priest is facing the same way you are, and you can only see his back, see the elevation of the host, it's very easy to be one with the priest in persona Christi. When he's looking at you, especially if you know him, right, it's very difficult to break that barrier, or at least more difficult to break that barrier. Well, and speaking of the back of the vestment, often the backs of vestments have some kind of cruciform mm -hmm. yep. in the newer chasubles or whatever they are goes that way and yeah. in the baroque ones it does go that way and so now the image of the priest standing in the place of christ becomes very yeah. clear amen bottom of page 83 or 69 just to sums up thus the symbolism of the cross merges with that of the east and that's why the altars have a cross that the priest can face next page 84 four lines down but finally, this turning toward the east also signifies that cosmos and saving history belong together. The cosmos is praying with us. It too is waiting for redemption. It is precisely this cosmic dimension that is essential, there it is again, to Christian liturgy. So once again, we're not just in this building looking at each other or looking at the cross. We're looking out beyond the building you know, to the cosmos. Few lines down. I quote this a lot. Uh, I repeat it many times. That is why, wherever possible, we should definitely take up again the apostolic tradition of facing the East, both in the building of churches and the celebration of the liturgy. We shall come back to this later. We said something about the ordering of the liturgical prayer. Um, have I told my story about Alpha Maria's church, the orientation? Uh, I'm going to tell it. Let's see how. Well, let's see. Um, yeah, I'll, try, I'll tell the short form. I'll tell the short form of this. <laughs> when we we're planning, Thomas Monahan, who was fun of the whole thing, built the Alpha Maria town and university. There was going to be, of course, a chapel there. It's called an oratory, a church, basically. And when the, when the architects first came, they had the town on the camp the church on the campus was facing north but i said that we big there are 30 people on a table all these big wig new york architects and i said well you know uh, we need to make that thing faced east so they were a little nonplussed but okay we'll do that so while they went back to new york to, to make some changes i was visiting with carl schoenborn from from vienna my classmate and friend of years ago and uh, his cathedral is saint stephen's the Feast of St. Stephen is December 26. It was cornerstone, or the foundation was laid, I think, in 1227. He told me that St. Stephen's Cathedral does not face 90 degrees east. It faces the point on the azimuth where the sun rose on December 26 in 1227. Mm. I came back, and I went on the Internet, and I went to the Naval Observatory, and I was able to find out uh, where the sun rose on March 25th, the Annunciation, in the year 2000. Because Alpha Marie University, of course, that's the Annunciation, right? And so I found that it was something like 87 degrees and 26 minutes and 12 seconds, something like that. So now the, the architects came back, and they're so proud of themselves. Father, we got we got to face the east. Well, you know, I just there's just one slight alteration I want to make. Could you make it go 87 degrees, 26 minutes, and so on? Okay, I explained why. So to this day now, not only the church,
but the entire town of Ave Maria is oriented to the point where the sun rose on March 25th in the year 2000. And that's one legacy they can't take away from you. They're not going to adjust that church's orientation. That's right. Anyway, okay. Um, middle of that page. The second innovation in regard to the synagogue is follows. A new element has appeared that could not exist in the synagogue. At the east wall where the apse, there now stands an altar on which the Eucharistic sacrifice is celebrated because you didn't have sacrifice in the synagogue. Ten lines from the bottom. Thus the altar signifies the entry of him who is the Orient into the civil community and the going out of the community from the prison of this world through the curtain now torn open, the participation in the past, the passing over from the world to God. So it's beautiful how we integrate that thing of Exodus Redditus. Now we've got the altar there so that this Christ is coming to us is actually present in our midst. Next page, just pull above the middle there. We have more to say about the practical consequences of the significance of the Christian altar because the question of the correct position of the altar is at the center of the post-conservative debate. Well, that's true. Now, three lines below that. The third point to be noted is that the shrine of the word remained even though with regard to its position in the church building. However, of necessity, there's a fundamental innovation here. The Torah is replaced by the Gospels, which alone can open up the meaning of the Torah. Moses, says Christ, wrote of me, the shrine of the word, the Ark of the Covenant, now becomes the throne of the Gospel. So that's the third third change there. Father, just if I may, because you left out the one passage on page 85 actually highlighted. So, okay. Um, so the altar is the place where heaven is opened up. It does not close off the church, opens it up, and leads it into the eternal liturgy. I just like the fact that the, the eastern facing, the oriented altar is like something which opens the door to eternity. I just, I just love that. And here's a question. Um, because in the synagogue and in the early church, there were two different things going on, the word and the altar of sacrifice. So, isn't that something the council wanted to do was take the word off of the altar and put it exactly. on to the, the ambo exactly. or, or pulpit or something? Exactly. You separate the liturgy of the word and the liturgy of the sacrifice. Again, uh, the council, especially the document, and then some of the, the reforms that took place, I believe were beautifully done and, and properly done and theologically done and will have will bear fruit in the future. Uh Next page, towards the end of this chapter, uh, four lines down. During the liturgy of the word, the congregation gathered around the shrine of the sacred books or around the seat associated with it, which evolved quite spontaneously from the east, from the seat of Moses to the bishop's throne. So first part of the liturgy, you're around the, the throne of the seat of Moses. You lines below that. At the end of the liturgy of the word, during which the faithful stand around the bishop's seat. Everyone walks together with the bishop to the altar, and now the cry resounds, conversia dominum, turn toward the Lord. In other words, look toward the east with the bishop. And so, to me, that's a beautiful drama of the Mass, as it should be celebrated traditionally, is that at the beginning of the Mass, the priest is representing God to the people, proclaiming the word, explaining the word, 
And then with the response to some, we have this antiphonal response, alteration. Then come the gifts, which the people bring to the priest, and now the people represent the priest towards God. And he turns with them to make that offering to God. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, often people think, excuse me, that the consecration is the high point of the Mass. It's not. Very important. But the high point of the Mass, the high point of the Mass, the crown of the consummation, I could call it, is when after the great elevation, now the priest turns to the people to give communion. And that's, you know, the host is not primarily to be looked at, although we can adore and we should adore. It's meant to unite us with the bridegroom. And so that beautiful uh, drama of the priest facing with the people, towards the people in the word, with the people in the sacrifice, and back to the people as the bridegroom with the bride. Finally, uh, bottom of the page here. Finally, we must mention one last difference between the synagogue and other in the early church buildings. In Israel, only the presence of men was deemed to be necessary for divine worship. And then towards the very end of the chapter there, next page, even though the public liturgy of the word was not entrusted to women, they were included in the liturgy as a whole in exactly the same way as men. And so that's a important uh, development in uh, Christianity that, that women had a greater part in worship. Is that enough for one session? I think it's enough, yeah. I think, I think we've exhausted it, everybody. <laughs> well, I, I, I played the prophet because uh, in the uh, discussion questions, I presume we'd only uh, uh, manage one chapter, so I was, I was proved correct. Um, so next time, Father, we, we are assuming just one chapter again? Well, uh, it's not... to be ambitious? Probably, yeah, this one is the densest chapter in the whole book, I think. So let, let's, let's assume we'll just do one there. Okay. Thank you, everybody. You're still there. You are. Come back next week. We'll see you. God bless you. If you enjoyed this discussion... Please help spread the word about the Forum Book Club by subscribing to the podcast and writing a review. You can sign up for weekly updates at formedbookclub.ignatius.com.